0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Taylor, and I'm the relational ministry leader and the small groups leader at Life. I am not Mike. uh, Sorry to disappoint you. But uh, I'm here today to share a message. We're going to dive into the book of James. But before we get in there, real quick, you might have seen the slides if you were here. Uh, But we have an event coming up uh, through Champs Academy. So the reason you're sitting in a sanctuary that looks the way it does is part of how life, we tell a story, and you're sitting in a part of what is Champs Academy just behind those curtains. And Saturday, April 17th, doors open at 7.30, event starts at 9, but we're going to have an event. Uh, It's called Bring On Spring, and it's meant for you and a partner to get together to come work out, and it's a fundraising event. So the fee for you and your partner would be $50, but our hope is that we get new equipment for Champs. The reason we want new equipment is because we want to enhance our facilities to, so that you can invite someone to work out because Champs is a mission and it's a part of who we are as Life Church, it's our identity. So we encourage you to partner with someone, even if you don't know how to work out or it's been a long time. I signed up for it. Me and Shane, he was gimping last week. And Shane and I are signed up to do this thing April 17th, 9 o'clock. Um, so after this service in the cafe, there will be uh, a table where some of our, our workers from Champs will be to, to sign up and get you registered for that. So we encourage you, please do so. All right, so. We're going to dive into the book of James. So when you see me, we're going to be talking about uh, what James has said in his epistle or his book in the Bible. Uh, So this week, we're going to talk about trials and temptations, and next week, we're going to talk about hearing and doing. But James, if you've never read it, I encourage you to read it because it's an easy read. You can read the front to back of James in about 20 minutes. And it's one of those books that's like a cliff notes. It's like, if it says this and it's easy to understand, then I'm more likely to do it. That's that kind of book that James is. It's the nitty gritty of Christianity. But I want to emphasize who James was before we just go in and start reading what it says, because who James is, is really a large substance to what you're reading and why you're reading it. So. In today's world, especially in Christianity, because that's who James is writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians, really. We'll talk about that briefly later. But in today's world in Christianity, I think one thing we fail to do is to examine or evaluate where we are in our walk with Christ. Because so often we get caught up in the mundane, we get caught up with what's going on in the world, and we kind of forget to take the step back and say, all right, am I doing what I was called to do? Am I doing what the Bible has told me to do, what God has said to do? And James is a great place for that. It's a great book to go to, to read through God's word, what the brother of Christ had to say about how we can live on our spiritual journeys. Because what happens is in life, we get out of control when we start doing things on our own. And this practical book of James says, this is what you're supposed to do, but the world says do this, and the Christian response is meant to be different. And that's how we set up really what the book of James is telling us. And like I said this week, we're gonna talk about trials and temptations and what we can expect from these things as believers. So we're gonna pop right in, uh, verse one. So if you have your Bibles, your e Bibles, whatever it may be, open to James chapter one, verse one. It'll be up here on the screen in just a second. There it is. It says this, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations greetings. We're going to pause there. Because who is James? I kind of mentioned it, and you might know already that James is a half-brother of Jesus. And If you didn't know that, now you do. Because of the cultural context, the language, the time of this book, we can attribute the author of James to, in fact, James, the brother of Jesus. There were actually four James mentioned in the New Testament, but this is one we go to. And it's also considered to be the first book written in the New Testament, likely because of who James is. See, James was one of seven, and that might come to a surprise, but if you read throughout the Gospels and you read throughout Scripture, you find that Mary and Joseph had more than just Jesus. Jesus was the first son, then there was James, and then I forget the order, but it was Joseph, Simon, Jude, and two sisters that we know of. So there's seven people in this family that grew up with Jesus, but James, even amongst the disciples, is the one person who spent the most time on earth with Jesus, more than anybody else. The disciples had three years with Christ. James had 20 plus. He was the brother that was next in line from Jesus. So it's Jesus, then James, and they grow up, and imagine this. As little boys, they grow up together. They're in a Jewish culture, and the reason you had so many kids in Jewish culture was because you had a skill, or you had a trade, or you had something that you needed labor, and you labor for, and you didn't hire people to do that. You had kids to do that. So Jewish culture said you had kids until you couldn't have kids anymore. And Jesus' family, we know, were carpenters in Nazareth. So all these kids are working together, growing up, and this is who James. This is where his story starts. How many of you have siblings? Only a couple? Okay, there we go. All right, now keep your hands raised. I want to try this really quick. How many of you would consider yourselves a slave or a servant to your sibling? That's how we know we've—oh, i say hopefully everybody's hand went down. <laughs> Must have some good siblings. Probably not perfect like Jesus. But James opens up and he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am submissive to even my own brother. He's also saying that he's Lord. Lord means that's the person who deserves our service in the first place. And then he says he's Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's the promised one. That's saying Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was going to come to us, the the natural-born virgin son, or son born of a virgin birth. So James, the brother of Jesus, think about this, is saying... I'm serving this man. He could have said, James, comma, brother of Jesus, comma, but he didn't. He chose to use this phrase. That sets up how we can look at a few instances of, of the nature of James and Jesus' relationship. So, if you remember back, Jesus, when he's roughly the age of 30, starts his ministry. And he grows up in Nazareth with this huge Jewish family, but then he leaves. And we know the story. He goes to the River Jordan where he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And he's not eating anything. And then he goes into Galilee. He starts teaching in the synagogues. And then he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. We know the story. But put yourself in James' shoes. This brother you grew up with, the perfect brother you grew up with, the Bible tells us that James and his family at that point did not believe in what Jesus was saying, but Jesus goes on this hiatus, he's just gone, and he comes back, and you're in the Sabbath, or you're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and here comes your brother, and somebody hands him the scroll of Isaiah. And if you know this story, this is actually really profound, because Jesus comes back into his hometown, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he says this: This is found in Luke uh, Luke. Verse Chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, if you do want to follow along, it won't be up here. But it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll. He hands it back and he sits down and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Your brother just went away for a while, comes back in the synagogue and says, yeah, I'm the Messiah, without saying it directly. Imagine your reaction. You're like, oh, no, what did you just say? Because this is huge. This is what the Jewish people are waiting on. They're waiting on the Messiah to come, and Jesus walks in after he started his ministry, but you don't know that yet. You just think Jesus left, and now he's just said something crazy. But what we read later in Scripture is that that entire temple, that synagogue, becomes wrathful and they drive Jesus out. They try to throw him off of a cliff, in fact, but he turns around and he keeps going. But that's your brother. Your brother just said these things. The people that you live in community with are like, that was your brother who just did all that. You might feel this sense of embarrassment because you don't understand what's happening. But this is what happens with James. This isn't necessarily in scripture, but I would like to think that when your brother who just had this, made this big statement, reading the scroll of Isaiah has gone out in his ministry because he's left Nazareth and now he's going around and he's healing, he's performing miracles. Thousands of people are listening to him. He's got disciples following him. When you hear about that, you're like, what is he doing? What is it about him? But then I like to also imagine what it would be like when your mom has to come home and tell you that your brother is dead, that he's been crucified. How fitting is this whole thing because of what just happened and what we just went through Easter Sunday, Good Friday. This is where James is coming from because Mary watched it all, watched her son die on a cross for you and I. And James is told about how he was beaten beyond all recognition. Your own brother. Imagine how that's going to affect you. But then what? He's dead, and nothing happened right away. So you're like, man, if Jesus wouldn't have been like this, none of this would have happened to him. But we also find out in Scripture that Jesus reveals himself to James at the resurrection. So then imagine, first of all, if if you were ever a part of the resurrection you didn't believe, you're probably going to believe. But think about that. From childhood to this resurrection moment, James is like, oh, everything you said actually is true like if you've ever lost someone close to you that's ever taught you anything a grandparent a parent I know for me when my dad died I can look back and think about oh that's why he told me to do this that's why I do this that way and not this way when I wanted to ignore it and maybe not hear it while he was alive now that he's gone I can think back through all these things that say ah that makes so much sense now But James didn't just lose a parent or a grandparent. It was his brother who is the Messiah. That's who James is. This actually leads James to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that's big because if you've heard anything about the council of Jerusalem, this was one of the first times where the church had to come together and figure out how they were going to do things. Because you have Jews and you have Gentiles who want to believe in Jesus, but they do things very differently. James is your guy think about it. Everybody said, listen, you lived with the man. What are we supposed to do now? And that, so James has this position. But he goes on to actually be martyred. He's murdered. It says that they threw him off the top of a temple. He fell to the ground, and he didn't die. Then they went to stone him and beat him, and while that was happening, you know what he did? He looked into his accuser's eyes, and he prayed for him. Why would you do that? Probably because you know what's on the other side probably because you know that no matter what's going to happen in this life you have seen it with your own eyes and you have felt it you watched it happen your brother said i know what's to come and you're living in that that's going to change the way you think about everything that's going to change the way that you view trials so who's james writing to then well, the end of verse 1 says this. It says, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So an easy way to remember this, if you want to take a note, take a picture. Actually, I don't have it on the screen, so if you're just taking a picture, it's of me. But. So this is an easy way to remember it. James is the brother of Jesus, writing to Jewish Christians outside of Jerusalem. Four J's, really easy, right there. James, Jesus, what would I say? Yeah, so James... <laughs> The brother of Jesus, writing to the Jewish Christians outside of Jerusalem. Easy way to remember that. So that sets us up. But James doesn't take us time to go into this epistle, this letter that's written to this group of people. He doesn't say this whole introduction. He just says that verse, and then he goes, real quick, verse 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you faced trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He doesn't waste time. He's just like, listen, this is what you have to do because you're going to be made this. So ultimately, what do trials end up doing to us? They test our faith. Point blank. You can try to sit there and go through Scripture and say, well, the devil did this to this person and God allowed this person to go through this. But pull all that back. What does it really matter in the first place? Because a trial is going to do one of two things to you. It is either going to draw you near to your relationship with God, or it's going to pull you away. You know the difference? Your reaction. The way you go through trials and who you go to determine where you're going to go down that path. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, consider it pure joy. Because even when he was being killed, he knew what was on the other side, even in his own trials. James is like, I know there's something way greater. The sufferings of this earth, as hard as they may be, as a believer, we're going to go through them. But my eternity far outweighs anything that I'll ever have to endure in this world. Well, that's all and well, but how is that going to make you mature and complete? Right? He says, he says I'm trying to give you a recipe that you can follow from going through a trial to considering it pure joy all the way down to mature and complete, not lacking anything. And that's a process. But it doesn't make you or give you more faith when you go through a trial. It gives you the endurance to get through your trial. It gives you the endurance for your faith. See, your endurance ultimately is what's going to lead you to that maturity, but think of it like this. F.J. Ahort is a famous theologian and he kind of laid it out like this this example. Imagine being made mature and complete through your trial, like climbing a ladder, and each rung of that ladder is like a trial. And the end of that ladder is mature and complete. This the Greek term for this would be called teleos, and that means brought to its end. So each trial that you go to, you're striving for this sense of perfection. But what happens when you climb a ladder and it keeps going? And you don't see the end? You get tired. It gets harder. James would tell us that, keep going. But the reality is that it's so much easier to let go of that ladder. And the, the other reality is that even if you don't want to let go, maybe you just feel like, I need to take a break. I've come so much further from where I was, or I'm doing better than them. Look how much higher up on the ladder I am than them. And then we begin to compare F. J. A. Hort writes, woe to that person. Because ultimately, if you stop striving for perfection, if you stop striving to be made mature and complete, then you stop allowing Christ to make you only what He could ever make you in the first place. That latter concept is how we can think about getting through our trials and getting up to heaven because ultimately, this this final outcome, we don't get it here on earth. It's our eternity. It's our crown of life moment. And James goes on to say this. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, on the other side of your trials, there is a crown of life, but you're going to have to endure. You're going to have to suffer and bear up under what you're going through to see that. And James says, oh, by the way, there's something else that you can do in the middle of your trials. He tells us that our first response ultimately is to go to God. Because when a trial happens, you usually don't understand why, how, what, when, or where. But what you do know is that you serve a God who knows all of it, and he's there with you. You see, James' response is, hey, first thing that happens, go to God. But sadly, it's the most misstep in Christianity to this day. We try to do things on ourself, by ourselves because there's this like instantaneous fix, like, I know I can do this. Life hits you, something happens, you immediately try to take action for yourself, and James is basically saying, if you lack anything, go to God. If you lack the understanding for why you're going through the trial in the first place, go to God. He lays it out for us. The problem is, when we try to put ourselves in those shoes and we try to fulfill The will of God on our own without using Him, life starts to fall apart. Nothing starts going your way and you fall victim. You have an option though. But when your option is to put yourself at the beginning of your trial and use your own strength and your own will, life starts to unravel and you stop understanding things and guess what happens? Behaviors change. You stop praying, you stop reading the Bible. You stop coming to church. That one week when you miss church turns into a month. That month you stop coming to church might as well be a year. I didn't see God do it because you never let him do it in the first place. You're doubting God's ability when you don't go to him. When he's telling you go to God, he'll give it to you generously. We're going to read about it in just a second, but he's telling you straight up, What you need to do is you got to go to God. And if you don't go to God, then why would you ever need him in the first place? Because you think you can figure it out on your own? That's where we stumble in Christianity. But that leads us to drifting. Verses 5 through 8 say this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double minded and unstable in all they do. Doubt. You have to believe that God can and will do everything that He says He has, is, and will do. How many of you have ever been to a beach? There we go, fans are raised. There we go. If you've not been to a beach, or you have been, this is what happens. You lay your towel down on the shore, you go out into the water, maybe duck your head under, get that suntan lotion off, kind of just enjoying the moment, catching the rays. A couple of minutes go by, you go to walk up to your towel, and oh, that's not mine, because your towel's all the way over here, and you didn't even realize how far you had drifted. That's how this happens when we start to doubt God. Well, that's what happens when we start to doubt that He's able to do all things. We drift. Drifting is so small, but if you've ever been in that moment, it actually is very meaningful and very impactful because that towel is all the way over here, and here I am. I didn't even realize it, but James is saying ask it, but ask ask God genuinely. He's not saying that pure joy, considering our trials pure joy, when you have a trial to be like, yes, God, this is the perfect trial for me with the cherry on top. You did everything I could ever imagine. This trial is awesome. He's not saying consider that joy, but reframe it like this. Go to God when you lack something. If you don't understand what your trial is doing to you or what's happening in your trial or why, say, God, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know why this is happening to me, but you know what I do know? That you know, and I know that you're in control So let me lead me into a life of obedience so I can trust in you and your will over me because at the end of the day, I can't do this without you. I need you. Give me wisdom. That's the way we view trials because we don't know, but only God does. And when we start to fall away and we start to doubt and we take that path of falling away from our relationship with God because we haven't seen it, we haven't seen him work so much, it's not been as tangible lately. Devil, I just imagine, would sit back and be like, huh, you're doing my work for me. Devil doesn't have to try hard to pull you away from God when you're already doing it yourself. Vance Tabner says this, Satan is not fighting churches, he's joining them. He does more harm by sowing tares than by pulling up wheat. It's easy to do what's easiest. It's easier to do less work doesn't mean it's God's work. It's harder to be a Christian because it requires more. Even though these concepts are simple, it still takes more out of us. How many of us have gone out and awkwardly prayed with our spouse before in the middle of one of their trials? If you've never done it before, that's an awkward barrier to break. It's harder. It's harder to go up to someone in the grocery store when you can see that they can't pay for their groceries and say, can I pray for you? Nothing is easy to do Necessarily, but if you know who Jesus is and you know what eternity is, it makes it easier. But it's also just easier in general to do nothing about it. You see, that problem of trying to figure out what's happening in my life, why it's happening to me, how it's going to be resolved, and when it's going to be resolved that's how we want to go through trials. But that's not how we're meant to go through it. We start to play victim. This is what the world's response would be play victim. Poor, poor, pitiful me because I can't figure out what's going on. And then we start to place blame on other people. Well, they did that to me. The government did this to me. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm struggling financially. You blame everything else. But you know what the Christian response is? Endure it. Endure it because God, the only one that can bring you through your trials, sent his only son to rescue you. And that's where we should place our focus, not in what's going on in the world or the circumstances around us. When a trial comes your way, you're meant to endure it so that it can make you stronger. But listen, our trials aren't meant to take us away from God. They never were. No matter what's going on in your life, your relationship is meant to increase and not decrease. But so often, something wrecks us in life. Something devastates us, it shakes us up. We're like, that should have never happened to me. There are people going through things in today's world that we pray would never happen to us. That's the reality. Those people don't have answers and neither do we. But ultimately, that trial is going to make you stronger. And if you ever felt weak in the first place, guess what? God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Remember that. Remember that God's trying to make you stronger. And I, I picture like this, God doesn't want quitters. He wants warriors. He wants people that are ready to endure the sufferings of this world to share and partake in the sufferings of Christ so that they can have eternity with him forever. I want to share a story that's you would think may be completely unrelated to this, but it's about my daughter. She's two years old. This week, we were uh, trying to get her to sleep pretty normal Uh, We have her on a sleep schedule. So from the age of, what, four months, we put her on this routine where she goes down to bed at this time. You put blackout curtains in the room. You turn a sound machine on. She wakes up at this time. And like clockwork, for almost two years, my daughter has gone to bed at 7.30 or 8 o'clock and woke up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Hallelujah, right? But she takes one nap a day, too, and I can tell you when that nap is going to be. But there was a disturbance this week at Twice I can think of, I think Tuesday and Wednesday, or maybe it was Wednesday and Thursday, when we went to put her down for a nap, she started screaming. And I'm talking, we thought she was in pain. Something was wrong. But we started talking with her after, and we found out that she was just scared. She's two, and she's learning that there's these things on TV that people call monsters, and that can be scary. And we try to filter as best we can as parents what she does and doesn't see, but at the end of the day, she's going to hear about a monster at some point in her journey as being a child. So we normally would do a routine where we read books, we say our prayers, we put our daughter down, but this week was not happening. She starts screaming, and I'm like, what are we going to do? I'm talking to my wife, like, what can we do? So for her naps during the day, I happened to be home, and I said, listen, I'll go up there, and I'll cuddle her, and she ends up falling asleep on me, which I'm not going to deny. It's amazing. I mean, You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to take that moment and embrace that moment. We're all hot and sweaty when she wakes up, and she just, you know, first thing she wants to do is go. She has her mindset. She's going to go play games or whatever. But Thursday night, we had an issue. Thursday night, she would go down at 730 or so, It's 9.30, and she's screaming, and we're like, what are we going to do? She didn't scream for two hours. We got her, but we're like, we have to put her up in her bed, and she's got to go to bed at some point. And we're not the parents that necessarily say, cry it out, but at some point, there's only so much I can do. So I went up there, and I was like, all right. I give her what we call scratchies, so she lays on her belly, and I, like, scratch her back. And she's laying there in bed, and she's, like, she's still sobbing and doing that thing where you go, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) and I'm on, I'm like, I'm giving her scratches and my arm's asleep, because it's like on the edge of the crib, and I'm like, I've been doing this forever, so I was like, what am I gonna do? So I laid down on the floor next to her crib, and she's still doing that sobbing thing, but she goes, Daddy, and I'm like, I'm right here, baby, and it was almost like she would go to fall asleep, but before she would fall asleep, she would go, Daddy, and every time I'd just say, I'm right here, I'm right here. And then I remember, I was like, okay, I need to sneak out of here. Didn't work. Start screaming again. But I remembered, I said, I'm going to pray this confident prayer. So, yes, I laid hands on her. I kind of teased her with scratching, and I said, all right, God, you're in control of this. I want this baby to not have fear. I want her to have peace. I want her to have rest. Lord, I know you're in control, so just, I'm just going to trust you're going to do this. I don't know how it looks. So I walk away, and what does she do? Screams. My miracle. Nothing. Nothing there. I go downstairs, and (laughs) my wife is, I think, 33 weeks pregnant now. She's emotional because she's listening to this on the monitor. So she's crying. I'm like, listen, it's okay. I got this. God's got this, really. And I go on the monitor, and I'm like, I'm right here, baby. And, like, instantly from that scream of pain in a lone, this alone place she was in, she goes, daddy's right here? I said, yeah, baby, I'm right here. And I'm not kidding, two seconds later, I didn't hear a peep from her. It was a testimony, and I I went downstairs, I like flew downstairs, I start writing this down, because I was like, how true is that in our situations and circumstances in life? When you go through a trial, you ever feel alone? You ever feel scared? My daughter, all she wanted was for me to lay with her. She wanted it her way, and when I wouldn't give her her way, she starts screaming and throwing a fit, saying, It's not working. All she wanted to know at the end of the day, even though she was scared, alone, and afraid, was that her father was right there. And I think sometimes in our trials when we feel that way, that's the only thing that we can cling to, but it's also one of the most valuable things we can cling to. I'm not playing God in this circumstance, but just how similar is that to what we hope for and what we long for? In this trial of a toddler, that's all my daughter wanted was just to know that I was there. That's what gave her peace, and that's how we can remember that no matter what you are facing in life, no matter what trial you're going through, go to God. Believe in Him and trust that He's there with you. Because He is, you wouldn't be going through it without Him. Every breath and every heartbeat beat of your heart that you have is from Him anyway. So go to God. So I want to switch gears real quick and go from this sappy kind of like story to temptation. And temptation, uh, if you'll recall in Luke 4, Jesus goes out, starts His ministry, Uh, And he goes in the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days, he is tempted and tested by the devil. And he's not eating food, right? We hear the story, we know it, yeah, great, good, and well. But don't forget, Jesus was the Messiah. He had all the power in the world to do anything he wanted to do. Why would he go starve himself for 40 days to start his ministry? I think it's probably because Jesus was being intentional and purposeful about what he was doing. He knew his ministry started, and he had a will of God to perfect kind of go back. Jesus is a part of creation. I kind of think that maybe that time in the wilderness was to sit back and look at everything that they had done and to take time with the Father in prayer but then what happens? When things are going good, you're looking at that beautiful sunset by yourself in the wilderness you created and here comes temptation. When things in life look good, something unusual comes up you're, you're tempted and Jesus has this encounter with the devil the devil says if you are who you say you are, why don't you just turn that stone into bread? Now listen, if you have eaten or gone without eating food for any period of time, just the mention of food will make you salivate. I could imagine that Jesus, knowing that he could have turned the bread into or the stone into bread, it probably just brought something up in his mind that was like, Yeah, that's tempting. But I also picture Jesus' response something like this. This is not in the Bible. But Jesus is out in the wilderness praying, you know, praying to the Father in heaven, looking out this beautiful sunset. Here comes the enemy, and he's like, you should turn that stone to bread. And he's like, man shall not live on bread alone. Look at this sunset. He's so focused. He doesn't care what the temptation is, and he's not going to give into it. It never even really enters his mind. But it still comes his way. The option's still there. He's tempted more, and throughout the stories we read this. But think about it. You ever been hungry? Temptation comes in, guess what? The devil wants to feed you, too. My question is, are you going to bite? You should be so focused on your mission and your calling in life that a temptation, it's nothing. It's inconvenient that it even came my way in the first place. But you know what I also consider it? A compliment. Why? Because if you're butting heads with the devil, you're not walking with them. We need to reframe our minds to think that way, that sometimes in being believers of the Christian faith, these things are all going to happen to us. It's inevitable. But the way we process these things, is really, it's really everything. So, if we start to process what it looks like to give in to a temptation, there's really kind of this three-step process that I think about. But to frame it all up, really, Jesus, when he was going to get people, he casts nets and the enemy lures us in. He throws that beautiful hook in and you're that fish and it's like, whoa, nice worm, free meal. Let me take that bite. You're dead. Jesus invites us in. The devil tries to take us away. When we're tempted, how we process temptation is everything. The first thing that's going to happen is temptation is going to come. It's going to arise out of nowhere. You don't expect temptation to come necessarily depending on who you surround yourself with. But temptation comes up. you You have a response to that. You either do it or you don't. So something comes your way that's unnatural, and then you begin to process that. This is where everything happens in temptation. Because you have the choice. You can say, Listen, that might be good. Nobody would know if I or maybe it would be better if I just did this. That's easier. I might do that. But then you're going the one path where you start to fall away. Because you read the response, and we see it throughout scripture. Flee. Flee from. Flee from this. Flee from that. Don't stare at it. Don't look at it. Don't let it sit there and consume you. Don't let it entice you. Be so focused on your mission and your calling in God that a temptation is nothing but an inconvenience and a compliment, really. Because you know what your your response is going to be. That's how confident you should be in who Christ is in your life. So if you fall victim to a temptation, though, is there grace for you? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. He paid it all. So James is considered this wisdom book of the New Testament, similar to what Proverbs would be in the Old Testament. Proverbs twenty four sixteen says this, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. It says you can fall seven times and rise again. The only way you can rise is by who? It's by Jesus. But are there consequences for falling into temptation and living in sin? Yeah, you betcha. This is what James says. Verses 13 through 15 say this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away from their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And I'm not talking just die. I'm talking about what's on the other side of your death spiritual death you've been walking away from god james the brother of jesus is saying listen i know what you need to do when these things come your way you need to place your trust in god i'm going to invite the worship team to come back up with me as we close out we're going to talk about what's going on in this world and how james closes out this part of his epistle because today ultimately being a believer in christ means that it's inevitable to face trials It's inevitable to face temptations. But our reaction and our response to them are what change everything. It will lay the foundation of our lives. See a trial, however you view it, God's trying to make you stronger in it. Your temptation only comes from the enemy and from your weakened flesh. So don't give into it. Today's world would say, it's okay to try to do things on your own. That will make you stronger. Or it's okay to do this or that because that's what society does. That's not necessarily sinning or temptation. The day is coming where you're going to have to make a stand on what you view as right and wrong and what you measure that with. As a Christian, there's only one thing we can use, and that's the Bible. That's the Word of God. That's knowing who Jesus Christ is in our lives. James sums this up. He says this in verse 16 through 18. He says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, for every good and perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. Listen, no matter what you're facing in life, God's your answer, he's not your option. If there's other options, then you're doubting. God is the only answer that you can have. He's not a vending machine to go to when you want something. He's always there, so treat him like it. Let God be God. And he's saying that every per- good and perfect gift from, in the first place, it comes from above. That crown of life is probably one of the greatest gifts you could ever receive. It only is made possible by God. But you know else, how else we can take heart in this? It's that knowing that we are our first fruits of his creation. A first fruit was was this feast that the Jews used to have and at the beginning of harvest or the end of harvest when they would get all of their wheats and their grains, they would give it to God. But that's significant because this is a time a feast of thanksgiving for God's provision in our lives. And James is telling us right now, that's you, that you're set apart as a Christian. You are not of this world. And he's saying right here, this harvesting of souls is still going today. From the time the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, when we read it in Acts, till today, every soul that's saved, we're harvesting. And and God is, is collecting this grain. It's going back to him. And that's you. And that's I. All the believers in Christ, we're set apart. So will you please stand so I can pray for you? Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Just say thank you. Thank you for giving us this life. God, we know it's not easy. There's people going through trials today, like we said, that we pray never happen to us. But Lord, I pray no matter where we are in this phase of life, that as believers we know and trust in your plans for us, that your ways are higher than ours, and that eternity far outweighs everything that we're enduring in this life. And we're enduring it in the first place because you know that we're strong and you're making us mature and complete, Lord. So God, I pray against any temptation that arises and I pray for strength in the midst of trials that no matter what's going on in life, we can put our trust completely and fully in you and we believe in you from beginning to end of the Bible for now and forevermore, God, in all the things that you've done for us. God, we thank you for all that you do and we surrender to your will. We love you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: In darkest night, you are close like no other. I have known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God.
0: challenge you to do something this week three things, simple things and don't even start just this week start today and let it be something that lives true throughout your life, it's this no matter what you're facing in this world no matter what's going on right now you're responsible for your obedience, not the outcome, you can trust Jesus with your circumstances you can read the Bible and you can do what it says if you do those three things, you live an obedient life. That's what James is telling us we can do. So I want to thank you for joining us here today. i would pray that we see you back next week, uh, and we're going to talk about hearing and doing. We love you all. God bless. Have a great week.